Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. As part of our Value of Soil Month, we brought together a panel of Heckfield's culinary director, Sky Gingell, Rory O'Connell, founder of the Ballymaloo Cookery School, Blanche Vaughan, food editor for House and Garden, and Alan Jenkins, editor of the Observer Food Monthly. Moderated by journalist Chloe Fox, they explore why it's the soil that defines good food. Going to introduce everyone who probably they probably don't need any introduction, but Sky Gingell, hard G followed by soft G, just in case anyone was wondering, is the culinary director here and one of the most acclaimed chefs in Britain. Formerly head chef at Petersham Nursery, she spent five years turning her restaurant Spring in Somerset House in London into one of the finest restaurants there is and uh, Sky at Spring has a has a farm to table relationship with Jane Jane Scotter from Fernborough who's sitting here who we had a wonderful talk with last night and um, and that relationship lies I think it's fair to say at the heart of her ethos and uh, a produce driven commitment to seasonal cooking. Rory O'Connell is the co-founder of the world-renowned Ballymaloo Cookery School in Ireland, and also the author of two award-winning cookbooks, I think. Yes. <laughs> and he's widely considered also to be one of the finest chefs working in Britain today, and he's a passionate advocate of a holistic approach to eating. Blanche Bourne is a food writer and the uh, food editor of House and Garden magazine. She's also the author of two best-selling cookbooks specialising in seasonal recipes that allow British pro produce to shine. And she lives between London and Devon, and she's uh, in Devon. She's a passionate supporter of community-supported agriculture. And last but not least is Alan Jenkins, who's the uh, eight years has been editor of the award-winning Observer Food Monthly magazine. He's also the author of two fantastic books, Plot 29, his memoir, which I heartily recommend you all read. And most recently, Morning, he was out this morning um, walking with maybe some of you very early. He's always up. By what time are you always up by, Alan? Um, between four and five. Between four and five. Um, it's a bit early. I don't recommend it for everyone. But he's a, a he's a passionate allotment gardener, introduced to biodynamics by Jane Scotter, and um, a firm believer <clears throat> in the power of good soil. We have a beautiful pile of soil here in front of us from Fern Vero, and because we're talking about um, how it's the soil that defines good food. I have a question that I'm going to address to everyone. I'll start with Rory. So I'm going to take everyone briefly back to their childhoods 
and to their abiding memories of the soil, what grew in that soil and how the role that's played in the person that you have become. I think I can remember back that far. <laughs> um, well, we had a garden growing up, a vegetable garden, among other things, as everybody had at the time. And we just took it for granted that, that that's where a lot of our food came from. And um, I remember the garden distinctly. Um, it had little sort of box hedges and it was sort of quite big, lots of cabbages and gooseberries and all sorts of uh, different things. And um, that was a significant portion of the food that we ate. Mm. So um, it was part of, it wasn't a pretty, you know, lovely thing that had to look sort of pretty most of the time. It was, it was part of our lives and we were slightly involved. Um, and um, it, sorry, what was the question again? Beg your pardon. No, what, how, how has that, do you think, informed the person that you might have become? Well, I mean, did it make you a chef? Do no, think? I don't think it. No, I don't think it made me chef. Well, not one single. There isn't one single thing that made me chef. Lots of things made me chef. Mm. We might talk about that a little bit later on. But I mean, maybe hugely important. It was. It was a lot of the food that I ate. So that clearly, that was part of making me the person I am today. But um, and it meant there was no mystery about where a lot of food came from. It just happened. Mm. You planted things. They they grew. In some years, it was fantastic. And they were harvested. So that mystery about food was not a mystery in mm. terms of, of the simplicity and the practicality mm. of gardening, that sort of thing. Um, it became a bit more mysterious for me later on when I um, started to think about food and where cooking became more of an emotional thing much, much later in my life. But mm. so it colored me from the point of view is that it was, uh, it was part of our daily lives because it was coming from the garden to the kitchen my mother cooked beautifully. She was invested in the food we ate, and, and and then the garden was part of that thing. So it was, you know, it was probably quite a good start if you're going to end up cooking. I think. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's quite answering your question. No, very that. good. Um, gosh, well, I grew up in Australia, so I suppose my memories. Um, I think the first uh, when you asked me before, it was um, I, the first food memory and gardening memory I had. It's the first day of kindergarten when we all went to school when we were sort of four and a half or five. At the school I went to, we planted a vegetable garden on the first day, and then we'd water it and look after it. And I, I remember I, I was allowed to take a carrot home that I was so proud of that I was going to take home to my mother and my father and show them that I'd grown this carrot at school and. We had a, a woman who helped in the house, and her daughter ate the carrot when no. <laughs> she proudly left on the kitchen table. I remember being completely mortified. But in terms of like gardens and things, I grew up in um, like it's. Uh, I feel Australia is very much a part of who I am, mm. and I grew up in. Um, I, I grew up in a very kind of tropical garden, so my our gardens were kind of full of hibiscus and the noise of cicadas and kind of frangipanis and. Um, uh, yeah, and I, uh, that, those smells, those sounds, those colours um, really kind of have always stayed with me. I was the soil, any... could you remember what the soil was like? Well, we grew up in a house, it was very dank and sandstony where we lived, and our house was kind of carved into the side of a rock near the water, and when it rained, the funnel webs would come out, which are the, the spiders. We've got two spiders in Australia, the funnel web and the redback. And both of them can sort of kill you if you're not kind of... 
And we used to, we had a gardener in our garden and they used to catch them in lime juice bottles and we used to catch them with him. And we'd take them to the museum and we'd get 60 cents for the venom. No. <laughs> yeah, so I remember the soil being quite, you, you ha I think there's a kind of danger in a way to the soil mm. and like Australia's a very different landscape. It's much kind of harsher and um, it was quite exciting. I, I found all of that stuff really exciting growing up. But nothing to do with vegetables or really like, no. I grew up in a macrobiotic family. <clears throat> so food was really important in our, in our family, but in a very kind of controlled, um, purposeful way. Um, which we all like just rebelled against as children, really. Still are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Alan, what about you? Um, I, at the age of five, I was taken in by an elderly couple and they had, they had a caravan, they bought a cottage and they had a caravan, it was a field. And over that summer, they created gardens we created lawns, which my job was to rake it, but it, it, in the uh, vegetable gardens, and we were given, my brother and I, it was the first time we'd been together, and we were given this little patch, and I was given a packet of seed. And I grew nasturtiums, and he grew marigolds. I don't think he ever grew them again. I still grow them, and I didn't even, re I knew, I, I thought I grew them because they were companion planting, and they're jolly, and they're common, and I like both of those qualities. And then I realized it wasn't quite that, but it took me a while to realize it wasn't quite that. But the other thing is they, they, it was very simple taste. They weren't adventurous in food, but and food was kind of fuel rather than food for enjoyment was kind of like I'm not sure it was a thing that they much kind of that they didn't approve of in a way, but it was that um, what I do remember was digging potatoes, and it was like my job was on say Sunday lunch or Saturday lunch, just be you know, just before my when it was in the process, I'd go up and I'd lift enough I'd lift a plant of potato. And it was this thing of seeing soil that was there and then kind of that magical thing. I mean, the mm. genuine magic of kind of lifting up these, I don't know, jewels yeah. in a way. And they were only ever, he, it was very simple. It was only ever really King Edward's potatoes. But when they were new and, I, and we had picked some apple mint and we'd go in about half an hour before and my mother would cook. And the idea was always you, took, you only lifted what you needed for that meal. You wouldn't lift a few potatoes then kind of store it. You just take them, and it was because it was that moment, and you'd eat them within 20 minutes. And that was quite special for me, mm. I think. A love affair with food began then. Yes, well, I think it was greed. I think there was greed, and kind of also, I sort of associated it with, it was I hadn't had a family, and I kind of quite, I sort of built, I have a very fevered imagination, so I sort of built this kind of fantasy of how it would be. And they just, it, it all sort of came together at this point that I had a new mum and dad, and a new home, and a new thing. And I remember putting the nasturtiums in. Actually, I probably don't remember putting them in, but what I do remember is seeing it, this brown earth become colorful and gaudy and sprawling and the whole kind of sheer kind of exuberance and kind of almost, you know, I don't know, the joyfulness of it all. And I, and I got that. And it stuck with me forever, I think. And I've always had it. My brother didn't have it. He grew marigolds, he didn't really grow them, but I now grow them, and I had, again, no idea. I grow them because he didn't grow them, I think. Mm. Yeah. Oh, great. And Blanche? Um, I grew up um, on a farm in a very lovely valley in Herefordshire, in the Wye Valley, 
and um, the soil was is, was very much part of my life, I suppose, because of the farming. Um, and my mother had a lovely vegetable garden, which we used to get most of our um, food from, like like Rory. The we did a lot of foraging. So there was a lot of sort of, you know, going down the hedgerows and picking things. And, and um, so that was always quite an inspiration um, and obviously very seasonally led. But what was quite interesting about the soil around our house was that I think things were quite heavily subsidised in those days. So there'd be, um, you know, these tiny little fields sort of... Um, divided by hedgerows and you know there would be a farmer sort of going up and down in a combine harvester trying to get a bit of crop off something which is now luckily back into um, pasture grazing land and it's you know, obviously much more suited for that so there was this sort of funny juxtaposition of you know trying to get everything out of the soil in that way and then us sort of growing our vegetables and 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 picking wild things from the woods and the hedgerows in another way. So I'm quite pleased that it's sort of um, all kind of evened out mm. and something a bit more natural now. But it, it hugely inspired the way I cook and I've um, and actually it led to the first sort of proper writing job I did, which was for you, which was writing about things sort of, you know, grown and grown in the allotment or the garden and cooked with immediately. And it was... it. Um, it's been a huge inspiration for me and continues to be. It's very interesting, actually, that of all all of you, mm. Sky is probably the one that has had the least. I mean, it's, it's interesting, yeah. though. Um, I'm going to start with you, Sky, obviously, because you're doing amazing things here at Heckfield and there's a, a fantastic plan for the future of the farm and the food that it will produce that Jane and Sky are working on together. So... I was hoping that you could explain a little bit about your vision for the farm and the farm-to-table relationship that you hope to grow. Um, okay, um, I'm going to try and keep it brief because I could probably wander on for ages. But um, uh, I think um, I was actually just talking to someone before we came. I came in, and um, uh, so. I think, I see Heckfield as being um, a real extension of, it's so funny how things in life just happen and they kind of all, in retrospect, you can see all the, they happen just as they should in a funny way. So um, when I left Petersham Nurseries, I had, we had a tiny garden there and it was, uh, it was really lovely for kind of being in the moment, but you know, you get herbs and a, a few things from it, but not very much. And so when I left Petersham, I definitely wanted bright lights and big city, and I wanted to be like, yeah, I felt like I'd been very bucolic. But um, <laughs> and um, but uh, and when I found um, spring, um, I suddenly realised that I had no idea what was going to inspire me anymore because I was really, really inspired by working at Petersham. It was like a really creative and wonderful time for me. And uh, I'd been in America and I'd seen all these farm-to-table relationships, you know, um, particularly Alice Waters from Chez Panisse that in Berkeley has this really, really incredible relationship that's been going for 40 years with a man called Bob Canard and um, went to Love Apple Farm, which is David Kinch's uh, farm with his restaurant Man Racer. And I saw all these things and I came back and I thought, oh, I really want to have that. And... Um, 
uh, and obviously I'd known of Jane and, um, and I wrote to Jane, I, e I found your email on your website and I wrote a letter and then I had seen Jane at Borough Market and at um, Maltby Street a couple of times and been quite intimidated by you. And I thought, and I thought <laughs> um, I'll write to Jane, I thought she's just going to say bugger off basically and uh, she said that we could, we could have a conversation about it. And, um, that's uh, like fast forward four years later, we've kind of, we've, we've done a lot of, and I, I think we probably forget the amount of work that we've done together and how we've formed the relationship because we had no idea how to make it work. We didn't know how you, a farm grew for a restaurant and, um, and we, we, we did, we sat down, um, and you told me to shut up at any time because no. I, I don't want to go on forever, but um, we, 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 we sat down together, first of all, and we literally planned the year uh, and, and we looked at um, books and we tried to work out, she tried to work out what I would like and I, uh, and I didn't, she said to me, what do you want me to grow you? And I wasn't sure what I wanted her to grow me. I just wanted her to grow me something beautiful that you'd chosen really. And, um, and but we had to work out in January, like this, the second week of January, like how many guests would be in the restaurant and what could we take? And because the one thing that I felt incredibly um, sure of right from the very, very beginning was that if we were to have a relationship that would be mutually um, productive and fulfilling for both of us, um, it had to be a viable relationship. So Jane had to make money and it had to make economic sense for us. And um, yeah, and uh, so we kind of really got to know each other, didn't we? And we went through, um, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it's been an amazing journey, actually. And um, uh, so I think, in a way, if I'm really being honest, I have grown to lean on Jane more and more as the kind of years have gone on the fourth year. And I think, hopefully, you lean on me as well. And um, yeah, and I just, uh, she defines the way I cook. So um, I think I have this immense, like I was actually, Alan and I were just talking before and we're, we've, we're, the, guy, we're the two people who have um, Jane's back, aren't we? We are devotees of Jane. And um, yeah, I think, I, I feel that um, in the best possible way, you give me this kind of beautiful tools that I can be really deeply and uh, uh, deeply creative with. And uh, I give you the freedom to grow. Uh, yeah, so it's a really, it's, it's, um, I sound very emotional. No, oh, that's good, good. It is emotional. <laughs> it is a very kind of. Uh, no, and, and do, you, do you go to, how often do you go to Fern Vero? Um, I'm going to move on. Yeah. And we're going to come back. Yeah. Alan. Four times a year. Four times yeah. a year. And Alan, Alan also, so Alan devotee number two. <laughs> yeah. Or number you one. You can pick up. Yeah. <laughs> you can find it's it out. Which of you? But you. So. Um, so you're. You farm your allotment. Farm your allotment. Yeah. You, you have a biodynamic allotment yeah. inspired by Jane's work at Fern Barrow. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It, it, what it was is that um, I work in a newspaper, and everyone has really clearly defined roles. I'm the editor, and there's various strata of how it works, and I, and. I wanted to sort of find a different way to something else. And sorry, this is going to be, a, again, a slightly long answer. Um, 
a few of us were talking about tomatoes and growing seeds, and we'd come in and like show each other pictures of our tomatoes, and it's sort of oddly competitive thing. So I had this idea that we could, I, we could find a space where we would grow together, and no one would be the editor. It was a bit, I don't know, like the diggers or something, and a, you know, a slightly hippie idea. But it, it was, it seemed quite a nice thing to do, and we would write about it, and we would write about it. And I remember, so I, later find we did write about it. we found a space and we had Blanche for instance right it was important that not just that we grew that people could cook from it and talk about it and it, it was of its time it was here it was there at the time um, it didn't quite work out like that because it was a really tough piece of ground and we pulled out skip loads and skip loads of bricks and glass and crap and then I realized it wasn't actually fair to ask the people who I work with whose boss I am to some extent in the week to spend their weekends like digging out crap because I had this idea that it would make us all equal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to me it, it perhaps didn't make us as equal as we did. I think the key with biodynamics was I'd, I'd, I'd followed Jane forever when the first bags arrived, when she first went away and when she first came. I used to go and buy cheese from her and start, start again, slightly intimidated. And she'd kind of look at me like I was some <laughs> foolish young man who just wants to engage her attention when it should be better placed <laughs> elsewhere. Anyway, so um, I would buy the bags, and it was, it was important to me. I got Nigel to come to Borough Market. Nigel, the most private man I know. Would, the idea of going to Borough Market was like horror. For Nigel Slater. Nigel Slater, because it was that he doesn't want to go, and he doesn't really, he doesn't want that stick of like, oh, it's Nigel, and all the stuff. And I said, you've got, I said, you've got to go there. And he said, no, no, and I said, you've got to go there because of this. Ignore everything else, just go there and see what's happening there. And suddenly his, his recipes changed, in fact. And the way he talked about it, and the way he plated changed, and the way that it looked changed. When you so, say, see what's happening there, this is see, see See the food, actually, just literally, see, to just go and... So I grow. You know, I've been growing now for 11 years, and I do buy it. I mean, it's partly because I went to Fernborough, and it looks like fucking children's colouring book. Yeah. <laughs> or Babe the Pig. I mean, there's lots and lots of work <laughs> yeah. that goes in, and I'm deeply aware of just how much work goes in but there's a sort of perfection to bits of it. And I, in all other areas of my life, I, I go and present to Tesco because I want them to give me a million quid for something that I want. Or I go, I run budgets. I sit and justify money spent in a dying industry. I deal, I sit in heads of department meetings where we work out Brexit or try to work out whatever we do. So it was important to me to, with growing that I part that to some extent and partly I do anyway I think I walk through that door and I kind of just have a relationship with soil and it's and that's a separate thing but I like the idea of it and I don't think it is based on faith it is based on results purely based on results and I don't necessarily get into the deep biodynamic theory in fact I can't do the biodynamic theory it scrambles my brain but I do the practice and it's a yoga I think for me I'd go and I come from the office and sometimes it's really inconvenient that damn calendar that lunar calendar that when I want to do stuff and I only have certain amounts of time and I can't do the things I want to do because my phone says, no, it's root day, or worse, it says, um, what is it? It's so generally unfavourable. Generally, yeah, generally unfavourable. Unfavorable. I think, like, what do you mean? I need this time. Why does your, how does your phone tell you that? I is have an app, a, an which is the, Mar app. the Maria Tun lunar calendar is now on your phone. Okay. I would recommend it for anyone. Yeah, sounds um, good. But I go there and I just... <laughs> You stir, or you do this slightly ludicrous thing. I, at winter, you stir stuff when it's very cold, with very cold. And I always do it by hand. It's, uh, the kind of smart people do it with sticks. I don't. I need my hand in there. I need to 
vortex it. I need to connect to it. I need to spray it. And, and I find it an incredibly deeply personal relationship. I think the soul knows who I am. And this it sounds like slightly crazy, but I think it does. I think it knows what, when I'm going away, I pop in to say, I, I don't actually say out loud, by the way, I'm going away, is that okay? <laughs> 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 but, it, but I sort of do, I think. I, mm. I, or just like, I, because I know that I won't see it for a few days, so I, it's more just like, yeah, here I am. And I think, I think it's literally, it's a kind of love affair, or it's like a parenting, or it's some, it's some deeply emotional relationship. And it, it's what we're talking about, it's about constancy and attention and all the good relationships are for putting in the time and putting in the love and doing it kind of... I grow, and I sort of... And I do grow by the and, and I saw seed, like, obsessively, like a maniac, again from America and again from Cork and other places. But it's, in a way, it's the growing that's the thing for me. I leave... I, I, I have a friend, beautiful garden photographer, who kind of nominally gardens with me. He turns up every two or three months. And I leave stuff for him and his kids. And if it's really beautiful... I'll almost not pick it because I want him to have it or I want his child to have it. I suppose it's, I, it's all about talking back to the child that wanted to grow something. But it's essentially, I, I just, it's the taking care of helpless little things. Mm. And I think it's that. It's literally, the soil needs help to express itself. And I, and I grow from seed, and I thought I grow from seed because I like the thing, and I realise it isn't anything to do with it. I grow from seed because they come up like little turtles, and my job is to make sure they get to water. And my job is to like, keep the gulls away. And my job is to just... Because at this age, they won't need me. It's only weeks. But when they just get their first kind of grip on the pole, and it's, um, it's, I think it's precious work, mm. a protection from predators. It's powerful work. So the food for you is a byproduct of a relationship with the soil. Yeah. So it's the food. So the food is secondary. The food's secondary, though. It's well, it, yeah. In a way, it is secondary. But I do, yeah. I'm kind of, I, I come back and I slap a load of beetroot on the on the thing. Going, hey, look at this! Like it's a deer that I've shot or something. <laughs> yeah. So it. it, it, it but I think it's secondary. I think I would grow it even if it was just being given to school kids. I think I would still grow it. I think, it, yes, I would like to take some of it home, and I do like, and, I, and I, it, I, I'm quite careful about the varieties I grow and the stuff I grow and treating it well, but it's the growing for me, I think. And it took me 10 years to realise that. It's just that being part of that expression. And are you a good cook? I'm a pretty good cook, actually. I was a single parent from 20, two kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm, what I'm really... I'm a good buyer. You know, that thing of just, like, going and... I can spot the kind of slightly glowing, the slightly alive stuff, which is... With Jane, I, I could see that. You know, like, when something's right. You know, when the fish is right. So, I'll go, I, I, so I never go in with an idea of what I'm going to buy or cook. I just go in and I see, oh, OK, it's red mullet. We're going to do something with red mullet, aren't we? Oh, I know what we can do with red mullet. But I don't go... Sometimes, actually, it's not true. There's days when I'm looking for the first sea trout. But otherwise... But then, you know, but mostly I buy well. And I, I cook quite simply. That's an mostly. interesting... I feed everybody five times, you know, through the week. 
So, so actually, I'm interested in all of you how how you cook. I mean, how you cook or how you shop to cook. Are you like Blanche? You like Alan? How do you? I'm not a grower. I think I've got to admit that. I'd love to be a grower, <laughs> but I haven't sort of found that moment in my life. I I grow a few things, and I um, I'm as you mentioned earlier very interested in this community supported agricultural scheme which goes on near near us in Devon um, so what I've ended up doing is letting them grow all the things that that I end up cooking with and then um, I grow the bits that they don't grow so I'll grow sort of unusual things like I might grow a gretti which is monk's beard or I might grow sort of interesting lettuces or I might grow um artichokes or you know things like that so I kind of I sort of fill in the gaps a bit but the thing that I mean that I have complete joy in seeing these things growing and picking them but it's actually the moment that I get them into my kitchen where I'm really happy and um and when I'm starting to prepare them and I feel I feel this sort of incredible um sort of commitment to them as it were because I know I you know I know where they've come from and I suppose I suppose for me the closer I am in the food chain to to my produce that I'm dealing with the 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 more kind of love I feel for it and the more I want to sort of treat it well um so you're happier cooking in Devon than in London (laughs) it's easier shopping in London there's so much yeah. more to buy. Yeah. You know, it's the, the things that are in the greengrocer in London are usually they're months ahead um, and there's a huge amount of choice. Um, so it's fun like that. But I like the I like the the options being narrowed down when I'm in the country mm. and um, and what is there is really good mm. rather than, you know, exotic imports, which you might find mm. in the city. And I and I sort of appreciate that as well, but I've never been to the supermarket in Devon because it would just sort of it would like it would burst my bubble. What it? Like <laughs> Which obviously I have to do in London the whole time. But you know, it's sort of it's this sort of thing that I just try and avoid. I just want to be as sort of close to to the um, to the to the the growing of the ingredients as I possibly can. And Rory, Rory's actually works on the, you cook on the farm. Can you explain about Ballymaloo and the relationship between well, the Well, <coughs> at the cookery the school, the it's where I spend most of my time now. Um, it's a 100-acre organic farm. And, where, and we have uh, cattle and pigs and chickens and um, obviously grow a wide range of vegetables and fruits and things like that. sort of 25 crops over the course of the year. And um, if you're going to run a cookery school, if you happen to find yourself in a situation where you can grow the food as well and also see the sea on the horizon, it's sort of nirvana, really, in a way. But just to go back to the first question, which I sort of didn't answer really well, because I think that's really important as to how the soil yes. shaped me. I mean, obviously, when you're young, you have no consciousness of that. And I had no consciousness when I was growing up that the fact that we had a, f- a garden and, and, and chickens and a, and a, and a wicked uh, Kerry cow that everybody was scared of for milk for the house and all of that sort of thing, that this was unusual. What I realise now what is, apart from the health that it gave us and my eight siblings, which was, uh, and, and my mother cooked for our health as well as for our joy, 
but it gave us joy that uh, you know uh, that we didn't not we didn't recognize the time but that was just the bubble that we lived within now it wasn't necessarily a completely different bubble to, to other people's lives because other people did grow a lot of food then but it, it's it, the impression on me has been astonishing in terms of health mm. and then memories and then and knowledge yeah. Mm. You know, knowing when gooseberries are, you know, the smallest <coughs> of your little finger and then, you know, they're as bitter as salt. And then once you see them like that every year, you know that in three weeks later they're going to be incredible. You know, mm. you're going to be ready. So, so, so the effect that they, uh, not being consciously aware of what was happening, but the effect it had on me as a, as a person, as an adult, is enormous. And I think those things can affect uh, different people in different ways. But for whatever reason, maybe it's because I discovered that I wanted to cook as well, that I loved to cook, not that I wanted to cook, that I loved to cook. Um, it, it has more resonance with me, those memories. But I think it means as much to my brothers and sisters as it does to me, some of them who are accountants yeah. or do have other jobs in, li in life. But um, at the school, um, the soil and the farm is everything. I mean, uh, when students come to do courses, particularly the longer courses, the first thing they do every morning, my sister marches everybody out uh, into the garden and she picks up um, some soil in her hand and says, this is it, says, smell it and you can taste it if you want to, but most people don't taste it. Um, it all starts here, which of course it does. Um, and, um, and it's uh, obviously symbolic in, in a way that you don't even need to say because it's, it's, you know, it's just everything. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, in life, you, you know, you, you find yourself in different situations, but to end up as a, 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 someone who likes to cook, and I also teach quite a bit, obviously, in the school, and love to teach people how to cook, to have that sort of, um, the closeness, the uh, absolute living beside and within and in between the sort of most of the food that we, well, yeah, certain times of the year, most of the food, actually, that we teach is just sort of exceptional. I don't think I've answered your question yet no, again. But, but no, but <laughs> <laughs> does, um, Sky, does food, does food, and Rory, and all mm. of you, I'm very interested, does food grown in good soil taste better, inevitably always, without exception, than food not grown in good soil? I think sun also is, sun and water are actually also quite important. Yeah. But, but the simple answer is probably, yes, it must do, of course. But I think you can't, you sit food in good soil in a place that doesn't get sun or in, in a place that doesn't, it doesn't have enough light. Yeah. You. So I, I, it's a bit more than that. It's more than that. But also you probably wouldn't have good soil in a place where it has no, no sun and no, no light, I think. I think food, I think what, what, what um, Tom and Jane were talking about um, yesterday about food grown with intent. I think that's what makes the difference in the flavour. Mm -hmm. And then there's the soil and the sun. But I just have to interrupt for a minute because I do have to say this, Roy. So uh, I have to say it because I feel it really, and I've always said, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? No. no. <laughs> He's um, looking wild. So, <laughs> no, so I, I, Rory is the best cook, and I wouldn't call you a chef because I think a cook is a much more important thing. Rory O'Connell is the best chef, a cook, that I know. <laughs> and I, there's no one, and I say it to you, but I want to say it publicly, there is nobody in the world that I would rather be cooked for than by you. Wow. That's, that's High no, praise. Thank you. That's very it's kind. It's beautiful, I think beautiful 
um, real food. It's absolutely a joy to eat your food. Thank oh, you. That's Thank lovely. You. I, 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 that's immensely uh, kind of you, Sky. And I, 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 I bow down at the altar at which you cook, as you know. I've never seen anybody. Uh, we've, we mustn't start a mutual admiration no. society, but there's very. <laughs> but I will say this: and as a cook, for anybody who likes to cook in the audience, you need to know what Sky can do with a lemon in one hand and a bottle of good olive oil in the other. The magic, yes. it's, 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 yes. it's, it's the strange thing we don't understand in biodynamics. It's the, it's the witchcraft, which of course, which can be explained scientifically, Tom, I know that. But it's, but it's, a, it's a very special, no, it's a gift. It is truly, it, it's truly a gift, actually. Mm. Um, well, no, but that's that, and I don't want to kind of deviate, but I mean, that's that salt, acid, fat, heat. Um, Simone, Simone Nosrat's book is absolute. that's how I cook. Yes. Yeah, it's salt, fat, acid, yeah. heat, that's all it yes. is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're, you know, if you love to cook and, and, and if you're, for me, the, and this goes back to the first question again, I believe my love of cooking is rooted definitely in my upbringing mm. um, because my mother loved to cook for us and, um, and, you know, sort of our medicine, but it was always a joy. So we never thought about the table as anything other than joy. And after one meal, we would uh, incredibly irritating, I suspect, for my mother, ask what the next meal might contain. <laughs> you know, having just, you know, and she said, often she would say, you know, bees, knees and spiders, ankles, when she didn't know what the next meal was going to be, um, because she hadn't worked that out. But, um, so, uh, and, and, so if you cook with that sort of joy in your heart and in your belly, yeah. um, then, then, it's not possible to cook with ingredients that aren't that don't feel like I can't. And I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I I can only eat chicken at home now almost because mm. there's yeah. one chicken producer in Ireland that uh, you know an organic chicken producer. Only curiously, there's only two organic chicken producers I think in Ireland. But the feel oh. of a chickens, it's just right. But all other chickens I can't deal with, which sounds sort of nuts. And yeah. that's, I have an emotional involvement here with food, mm -hmm. which makes, you can, you can sound ridiculous, you know, nuts at a so time. So it can but feel wrong. it goes back wrong. to this, it can completely feel wrong. The actual and if it feels wrong, I can't do it. Wow. Because I, have, I think, again, cooks have a response. I feel responsible, particularly if I'm teaching, it's out of the question to present a, a, an ingredient that I don't think is absolutely as good as it can be. Because how can you teach somebody you know, if you're not showing them, you know, the right ingredient. But, um, and also emotionally, because w with the soil, it's everything. It, you know, without the soil, we're screwed. Mm. It's kind of, it's like communion in a way. And the soil know. feeds the chickens in turn, doesn't it? I mean, it's not yeah. just vegetables we're talking about. It's No, and also everything. livestock is such an incredibly important part of this conversation as well. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's like not getting off the point, but... Um, no, it's not clean and lovely. And again, I mean, this is a difficult conversation because good food is now very expensive. Well, some of it's very expensive. Meat and fish has gotten very expensive, but of course you can still get ex extraordinary value. And, and you know, you can buy one of these. Oops, sorry. <laughs> you know, fr from, a, like, from, an organic, from an organic farmer for a couple of quid. Yeah. It's ridiculous. We've undervalued food economically. And everybody knows we undervalue farmers and growers who are heroes. And if you don't have good food, I mean, what have you civilization, got? it is a, one of the cornerstones of a civilized existence, I think. And um, um, Blanche, you and I were talking the other day about the, the choice and how much choice there is, but also particularly about the organic, I want to say fashion, but that 
that does it down, and it shouldn't be done down. But there's that the organic movement has um, the loop. It, the choice is huge, and sometimes you were saying to me, sometimes you can't always trust that it is organic, or if it's good enough organic, or any better than a non-organic that's been grown on a community so I farm. Think, so I think the, I mean, if it's <laughs> organic, it's organic, and obviously it would, you know, it, it has to have been certified. But I suppose what I was saying is a bit like back to Rory's chicken question. I mean, I I buy one chicken a month. Um, because it's what this community farm is able to produce and because I know that the chicken lives in the woods and um, and I know it's going to be an amazing chicken and there's there's one other um, guy that we were talking about who you can find at a farmer's market which is very good foss but um, you know and I'm sure there are others if I look really carefully but the point is I'd rather just have one really good chicken a month and than a lot of rubbishy ones and particularly so I wrote a book about eggs and I was meant to be writing a book about chicken and I and I um I uh, said to the publisher I can't actually write this book because I I just I don't like the way chickens are produced in this country even when they're so-called free-range and organic you know and you go and see the chickens that um you've got clucking around here by your quince trees and they look so healthy and wonderful, and the eggs that they're producing are probably fantastic. Um, but I don't trust so much of what is what is for sale. Mm. You know, I just don't think there's really enough transparency. What does everybody else think, Alan? Um, do you have an opinion? Well, I, I have a, uh, yes. I I I'm an incredibly privileged life. I have a well-paying job and my wife has a well-paying job so I can buy a bite of an oak chicken or a very high quality organic chicken. What I guess I'm wary of is and this is just an emotional thing and is the idea that I don't ever tell people that it must be organic chicken what we say is the best chicken you can afford because I'm deeply aware that there are a lot of people mm -hmm. who don't have much money and, and we talk about austerity and it's not it's actual poverty and it's a deliberate process of poverty and so I, um, I feel very awkward about the shaming of people who can't afford to buy the best produce. And even something like a cabbage, say. The truth is, I, I, you know, people say, oh, well, why don't they just go out and make cabbage soup? And I think, why should they make cabbage soup? Their lives are not very fulfilling and they're a bit crap. So if they're going to buy McDonald's, then I'm not going to make anyone feel guilty about it. And of course, I recognise there's also genocidal elements and there's genocidal elements in the producing of, of that. But I, I don't know, I, at the back of my head, I always have, I, there's a, I have a reader of Observer Food Monthly. And she's a retired teacher, and I move her around the country. Sometimes she's in Cornwall, sometimes I move her to East Anglia. She obviously doesn't exist, mm. by the way. What's her um, name in your head? Oh, she doesn't have a name because, have a name. because she's a different woman in different incarnations. And she, in di <laughs> she has different avatars. But she's, um, she's nearly always an English teacher. And she would have been the kind of woman who, when I was reading a book as a kid, gave me another book said, oh, you like that? Try this. And she's, but she's now living on a pension. Uh, but she reads and she eats. And it's a way of still traveling for her. And it's a way of learning and about you. And, there's, and so I'm just aware that she has a limited budget. So everything that I do, I'll never say two turbots. Mm -hmm. I, might ne I might never say eight, one turbot, truthfully. Um, or I, I, you know, so it, it's that I because I I'm in a different position because I'm I'm talking to a million people who 
who will just do, try to do the best they can. And I don't want everyone... You know, like, again, with the Slater con that we run every week, we're very careful to have a very clear sense of budget on it. And it's a, quite a low budget. Mm. Mm. And it's just that... Um, so I, want, I don't want anyone to feel excluded. I suppose that's where I emotionally stand. I come from an area of exclusion and shame, and I don't want anyone to feel shame because I think it's not very helpful. And I don't want them to feel excluded. And, but I will only ever buy a very decent chicken. That, that awful thing, those slowly wet, kind of, even the organic chickens in Denmark. Denmark used to be an agricultural country. <coughs> I'm married to a Dane, so I have a place there on the coast. Uh, beach heights, not like, you know, when I say a place, it's not castle or anything but um <laughs> and it's quite hard to get stuff and they're there they mostly do shop in supermarkets i go back to devon they shop in supermarkets the shops that existed when i was a child in devon do not exist what exists is a an out of town freaking budget or an out of town whatever it is and they just it's you buy the organic chicken and it sort of almost comes apart in your hand you kind of touch it, and it there's nothing to it but i guess i also don't want anyone to feel shit about that mm. yeah i think i want the people who produce it to feel shit, and we will do what we can to make them, you know, in some small way, try, you know, and we'll encourage other stuff. But um, I don't want to tell people you've got two quid, just make leek and potato soup because yeah. they don't. A lot of them, or the people who don't have money also probably don't have much time. Yeah. So that's just an emotional kind of slightly guardian-y thing to say. I apologise. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky subject, about how, how yeah. much money you spend on your food. How, mu yeah. well, how much money you have to spend to start with the terms. I think that's, that's so the key. But, but we actually spend a lot less on our food than we used to. Yeah. Yes, much We less. used to spend about a third of our income on yeah. food, and we don't spend anything yeah. like that anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. But it's also, but it's yeah. also because people know they have to spend... I mean, when I moved to London, I'd move around in London for like 12 quid a week in like any flat I wanted in Notting Hill. Yeah, and now that's not possible. Mm. You know, it's it's that people's anyway. That's a completely different conversation. Mm. Sorry, yeah. the co yeah. the true cost of food is a really separate. Co I mean, yeah. we, yes. we could it have that conversation. No, no, but I could yeah. have it now happily. Yeah. Yeah. but um, yeah, but it is. Um, what is important? Food is too cheap, yeah, irregardless of the price of food, um, and the quality of the food you're buying. If you don't know how to cook, yeah, but that's the other thing. Then it's your gone. food gets yeah. really expensive. Yeah. 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 yeah, or else, or else you have the option of buying. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it's funny because when you said, I'm just going to be honest, when you said, why should someone make a leek of potato soup? I thought, how delicious. Yeah. <laughs> how <laughs> truly delicious. Or a cabbage soup. <laughs> yes, I mean, yes. No, yeah, no, I, I don't... I, no, but I, I will do that, that but, I, but I don't think I have the right to... I don't know, this, it's... it's um, no, uh, I understand that too, and I think obesity very much is an economic issue. Yeah. And I think mm. that um, it's very, very hard. And I feel, like you, I have a restaurant where... People have to afford to be able to come and eat there. And I do. I feel like it's not for me to say um, exactly you should eat organic or biodynamic when you are struggling with, like, four kids and a very low income. And you can buy a McDonald's for whatever, $1.99. I do. I, it's a kind of it's a conundrum, isn't it? Because I, I, I personally eat incredibly simply. I don't eat meat at home. I haven't probably had meat in the house for about eight or nine years because really? I love pulses and grains and vegetables. That's where my true pleasure and joy comes mm. from in my eating. And I find that I can eat um, for very, very little incredibly well on mm. grains and pulses and vegetables and um, olive oil, <laughs> 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 sea salt, lemon. Yeah, so I mean, I, 
yeah. And I, I also think, and that's another thing, I think we, we eat too much. You know, we don't teach people how to cook anymore. We don't I mean, teach people how to you, cook, yeah. It, it's, it's that, you know, or people don't kind of, you know, there's, there's, there's less of the idea of sharing. You know, it's mm. that, I don't know. But the it's notion, such it's a the notion that you could allow children to go through school without teaching them how to cook. Yeah. To me, it seems sort of ridiculous. I mean, you know, they, yeah. can, even, they can choose to play tennis or rugby. Or As a life you know, skill. Or Latin or whatever yeah. it to be. As yeah. a life skill, it's a I mean, it's just such a crucial thing. And welcome back mm. here uh, and in, in, in Ireland as well. Um, cooking will, children will be taught how to cook. What makes you think learning to cook at home? Why is that? Uh, because yeah. governments are, are starting to realise that, that, um, that the cost of people having a mm. bad diet which is, uh, to a certain extent, based on not knowing how to cook and not having this time thing. Anyway, there you go. Uh, it, but anyway, the government's now starting to realise that the cost to the state is going to be so much, they've got to do something about it. Mm. And, uh, and but now they're now listening, I think. In Ireland, it seems to be this way, anyway. And people are telling them, well, if you, if you start to teach children how to cook, you know, you've got, they've got some chance. And it's like... It's probably not dissimilar, and Sky was cooking with, with my children not very long ago, and it was amazing to see that it's probably not dissimilar to the, the, the instinctive delight a child has when you, when you garden yeah. with them, yeah. because it's so evocative, isn't it? And it's the same with, yeah. Yeah, well, it was such a, that afternoon was so lovely. Yeah, they were but so, it's very, I mean, they, they love were, it. They loved it, they yeah. absolutely loved it, yeah. yeah. That was wonderful. Thank you all very much indeed. That was an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening.